1: Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V, and pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. Hello, Tom. Uh, Tonight, Father, I would like to begin the discussion with a topic that seems to uh, continually resurface here on the show, and that is of uh, birth control. Um, And it seems that all, all good Catholics would acknowledge that the usage of birth control for the sole purpose of preventing uh, the conception of a life is is intrinsically immoral. Mm. Um, But what about for for other reasons? Would it be permissible to use birth control, say to uh, to, to control hormones or some other function like that? Would it be permissible to use birth control um, for purposes other than preventing the conception of a human life?
0: If there's a pathological condition that a person is suffering from, and uh, such pills can help them regulate the metabolism, it would be legitimate to use them if they're being used truly as a proper treatment for some as i say pathology pathological condition but one would have to be careful to abstain uh... so as to avoid uh, conceiving a child uh... or doing you know in other words one could not be taking them at the same time when it was indulging in in uh... you know marriage mm. marriage uh, relations um, because of the danger that would represent okay. to, uh, you know, a child. I mean, the intention, the one might argue, was not to prevent the conception of the child, but actually uh, these pills can do violence to a child who is conceived. So um, one would have to, you know, be if they were married, they had to be abstaining. And of course, obviously, if they were not married, they would have to be abstaining from that. So yes, the pill could be used, to regulate um, some um, imbalance in the in the metabolism, um, as long as it, it didn't pose a danger to life.
1: Okay, but what about the claim that uh, that birth control can hamper the uh, the one's fertility and for, for if they were to get married in the future, if the, this birth control pill could. could that there
0: are that? residual effects. Right. Well, that's a, that's another study. You know, obviously, if it would if it would do damage to the individual, I mean, there might be a certain risk to that. Uh, I really haven't read the literature on that, so I can't really speak about that with any genuine knowledge. But I would say, I mean, if there is a certain risk to that, but even then, if the pathological condition that the person is suffering is that severe and that debilitating, it could justify taking that risk to in order to enable them to just function at the present. You know, okay. um, <clears throat> obviously. If there was some other way to treat the condition than putting oneself at risk by taking these pills, that one would have to avoid them. Okay. But there could be a proportionate reason to go ahead and take the pills, and not for the sake of that damage, not for the sake of avoiding uh, conceiving a child, but for the sake of dealing with an actual illness,
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, that that would be permissible to do. Okay. Okay. A, a real traditional Catholic doctor would be able to advise on that subject but I would certainly advise someone in that in that position a woman in, who had a situation like that to consult with their real traditional priest to know if if the condition would warrant mm-hmm. uh, using these pills and, uh, and and actually even warrant taking a risk if there if there were some risk but they they could not put at risk the life of a child a right. it, that's for sure.
1: Right. Okay. That uh, that seems to make sense there. And then in, a, in a, uh, a somewhat related topic, Father, one of our viewers requested that you spoke for a bit concerning the validity of the marriage of non-Catholics. Um, so uh, uh, th- this particular viewer writes in and says that it seems that many traditional Catholics... Will think uh, if if certain individuals, non Catholic individuals, get married in in their faith or perhaps no faith, just get married by a, a justice of the peace by the state, mm. that those marriages are somehow uh, not valid and they're able to freely divorce and remarry as they wish since there's no mm. sacramental bond there. Would that be correct?
0: It is not correct. Okay. No, absolutely not. Because even. Uh, marriage, not matrimony, matrimony being the sacrament, marriage being the natural institution with the natural bond of marriage,
2: mm-hmm.
0: is indissoluble it 's of the very nature of marriage, even the non sacramental marriage uh, has the the properties of unis- unity and indissolubility, mm-hmm. and so um, if you have two non baptized persons who marry. They are not bound by the law of the church, and uh, they um, they can marry validly certainly in their own even before a just of the peace. You know they don't need to have a religious marriage. Um, if you have non-Catholics who are baptized who are married, <coughs> they also can marry validly within their religion or even before a just of the peace. Uh, by the decree Tanetsi, Pope Leo the Thirteenth explicitly stated this, that the, the Church acknowledges these marriages as valid. Okay. Technically speaking, those who are validly baptized would be subject to the law of the Church, right. the authority of the Church, of Christ. <coughs> but uh, Pope Leo Thirteenth in the late 1800s uh, gave them leave to, to marry and marry validly. As I say, those who are validly baptized outside the Catholic Church uh, to marry, and the church recognizes these um, as valid marriages, and they are bound by the properties of unity, meaning that those who are uh, united by this marriage bond cannot have a romantic relationship with anyone else in the world as long as they are married, that that would be adultery, and that their marriage bond will last as long as they both live. And once the marriage is, uh, is is ratified and consummated, then there is no power on earth that can change okay. that.
1: Father, speaking of of just purely the natural institution of marriage, what are the requirements to uh, for 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 a marriage bond to be established there?
0: Well, the, the couple would have to be free to marry. Okay? okay, you have to have two people who have no other bond that uh, precludes a marriage to another person. Obviously, if a man or woman already has a, a husband or a wife, um, that they cannot marry. And so there's an impediment there, clearly. So if, but if they're free to marry, they uh, they can have the intention to marry. But if they have the intention truly to marry, they have to marry uh, according to the law of God who established marriage Uh and uh, we read that in the very earliest pages of the Book of Genesis in Sacred Scripture, that God joined them together, okay, for the sake of giving life, and for the sake of their mutual support and companionship. Mm-hmm. The sake of giving life is life is the primary essential purpose, and the sake of their mutual fidelity and care for each other is the secondary essential purpose. And uh, as long as they have the intention. To marry according to uh, God's plan and understand that that marriage is a unique bond between them and one other person and that it binds them for life they can validly marry if they deny any of these essential matters of marriage the things that go up to what constitute what marriage is in its very essence and or the essential properties uh, the properties that you know accompany, a Uh, necessarily accompany a true marriage. If they deny these things in getting married, and they deliberately exclude these things, then the marriage would be invalid. But if uh, a man uh, who is free to marry, who is not baptized, uh, marries a woman who is not baptized, who is also free to marry, and the two of them have the intention to be married together, and to, uh, to be married together in a unique bond, what we know as the marriage bond for life, then that would be a valid marriage.
1: What about if that uh, couple that you just mentioned, if they intend to be married their whole life, but if they get married with uh, planning to limit the number of children that they would have, would that still be a valid marriage bond?
0: If they planned to limit the number of children, that would not invalidate the marriage. If they planned to uh, absolutely rule out the possibility of, of having children, that could and would invalidate the marriage bond. Okay. But that would invalidate the marriage bond. Um, uh, both the, the idea of natural marriage, but also the sacramental marriage of matrimony okay. would be rendered invalid by that intention, contrary to the primary essential purpose of, of marriage. Okay. Um, there are many, I'm sure, who marry with the intention of uh, limiting the number of children they have, but they have the intention nonetheless of having children and giving life. Uh-huh. So they have the intention of fulfilling the primary essential purpose of being getting married and being married. Uh, the sinfulness of intending to artificially limit the number of children they will allow themselves to have is is clear. It is sinful to do that, but it wouldn't invalidate okay. in itself, wouldn't invalidate the marriage contract. Mm-hmm. Um, but if one or the other of them were to absolutely uh, preclude the possibility of having children such that he goes into the marriage uh, with the in- with the intention formed in his mind, I will not have children, I'm going to render it absolutely impossible to have children, um, then that would that would invalidate the marriage. Okay.
1: And the reason I ask that is, is because it seems like a, a common uh, theme that you hear nowadays of, of individuals who intend to marry and say, oh, I, I only want to have two kids, I mm-hmm. only want to have a boy and a girl, and that's it. After that, mm-hmm. I'm done. But you're saying that marriage would still be valid. It would still be, be
0: valid. Uh, that in itself, uh-huh. uh, as I had to say, would not invalidate the marriage. Okay,
1: and that would not mean that by any means that they're free to divorce. It would be sinful,
0: certainly. Right. No, no, they would still uh, be validly married. There would be a marriage contract. They would be bound by the, by the essence of marriage and mm-hmm. by the properties of, of marriage. Mm-hmm. They would have to be faithful to each other, and they would have to... Uh, they would have to understand that they are married as long as they both live. Okay.
1: And then just, just to clarify, for emphasis, this is all concerning just the natural institution of marriage and not the supernatural sacrament of, of Well, you matri- have
0: to understand, though, that uh, what is true of the natural bond of marriage as a natural, as I say, right. institution between non-baptized persons. So there's right. nothing sacramental about it. Right. Or even between a one baptized person and a non-baptized person. It's still not a sacramental right. marriage, right? Um, but the essential things of marriage apply to matrimony mm-hmm. because matrimony is taking the marriage bond, what was a natural institution, and elevating it to the supernatural level. Okay. It didn't essentially change the nature of the contract, the nature of the agreement, uh, the nature of the uh, the exchange of rights. Uh, that is, the, again, the very essence of a contract, the rights necessary to give life mm-hmm. and the rights necessary to care for each other, In a, you know, as a husband and wife. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if something would invalidate the natural marriage bond, you can be quite sure it would invalidate also the, the sacramental
2: mm-hmm.
0: bond.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: They, um, what is what is essential to marriage is true. That's essential to matrimony as well.
1: Sure. Okay. Father, just just a little bit of a, a monkey wrench in this mm-hmm. in this discussion. Could you uh, could you describe for our viewers what is meant by the Catholic Church's teaching on the Pauline privilege?
0: Well, the Pauline privilege uh, refers to a statement by Saint Paul, mm-hmm. uh, First Ep- Epistle to the Corinthians, Chapter Seven. Okay in which he talks about the case of a of a couple of Gentiles or pagans, non-baptized persons, who marry. Mm-hmm. And subsequently, and they, they have the natural bond of marriage, uh, holding them together. And then one of them converts to the Catholic faith. Mm-hmm. And uh, because of the conversion of one of them, the other, who remains pagan, Refuses to live in peace with the new convert. Uh, Either is so hostile and abusive, or actually even just abandons them altogether. Um, In a case like that, the convert has has recourse. And um, what what the church says is that uh, the convert can seek to have the original marriage partner, okay, the, the spouse, the pagan spouse, uh, come back and uh, accept the conversion and live in peace. And uh, what are required are three attempts called interpolations okay. to appeal to the non uh, the non Catholic to um, live in peace with the convert. And if they refuse, absolutely, either refuse to respond whatsoever or give a response and it's in the negative, I will not accept this, <coughs> and I will not live with this person as husband and wife, husband or wife, um, then the Pauline privilege uh, uh, says that they can take a, a spouse within the church and have a sacramental marriage. Okay. Um, This is explicitly stated by St. Paul in sacred scripture, divine revelation. So we know that God who established marriage himself gives this Mm -hmm. permission. And so uh, throughout the centuries since then, the church has called that the Pauline Privilege.
1: But just just to play devil's advocate, Father, this this seems rather extraordinary, rather contradictory. How you're saying that, that the um, the natural bond of marriage that is validly there between this this pagan couple that cannot be be uh, dissolved by anything but death of one party, but now you're saying that that this one member of of this union is permitted to marry another. So it seems that there's two, uh, two, two natural marriage unions going on at the same time. How does that make sense?
0: Uh, well, actually, the one marriage. Is dissolved in favor of the faith okay. and uh, let's face it Tom you could not do this sure. and I could not do this okay. but God could do this
2: sure.
0: and if he if he does mm-hmm. then we'll accept it okay. right mm-hmm. and the fact is we know that he did okay. we know that he he uh, favored the sacramental bond and uh, for the sake of a convert to the faith um, he allows he does allow this specifically explicitly he states that it can be so Okay. he gives that authority to his church to to grant that and as I said no other power could possibly grant leave to that except God himself Uh, there are um, there are uh, statements from sacred scripture that we we recognize, you know, it's a divine positive law, and this mm-hmm. is divine positive law that God actually stated this through St. Paul. Okay. That this is how it is to be done. And, um, you know, when when you have something happen like this, for example, what you're saying now um, uh, reminds me of, of an argument. It's not exactly the same argument, I understand that. But I think there are similarities because to say, well, we shouldn't, Christians should not be eating pork. Uh, Christians should be worshiping on the Sabbath day. Has God established this, and, um, and and so we, you know, we we have to we have to stick with that. And it is a fact that the creation God did rest on the seventh day, and we Christians are are resting on the on the, on the first day of the week. And so we are going against the divine positive law here. but um, and, and you know if you were a, a Judaizer you would say well that's true you know you'd say we have to follow the old, the old law we recognize that Christ changed that and he had the power to do so uh, as the Pharisees accused him of going against Moses because he wouldn't allow them to put away their wives and take another just by writing out a bill of divorce. You know? mm. But uh, the fact is, God has the right to revoke and to uh, supersede his own requirements. And I'll give you an example of that. Uh, After the flood, when mankind was virtually eliminated by the flood, and there was uh, essentially Moses, uh, I'm sorry, Noah, and uh, the, the immediate members of his family who survived, God allowed, after that, that uh men would have uh wives and mistresses too, or mm-hmm. you might call them concubines, or whatever you want to call it. Sure. Um so God actually uh you might say prescinded from the one essential characteristic of of, of marriage called u- unity.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And God allowed uh you know one to generate children by others, yeah. you know, as the human race Expanded out from that small nucleus, and more and more, you know, people were born, and the, even, um, even in the question of, uh, before that, Adam and Eve, and their sons and their daughters. I mean, uh, you know, there are laws against these things now, and for good reason. Right. Actually, we can, uh, we can even now understand them. Genetically, why it would not be forbidden then, with Adam and Eve, because they had the perfect human genome with all of the possibilities contained within it, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So what was (coughs) not a problem for their offspring (coughs) becomes a a problem as generation after generation after generation unfolds, and you have the human genome uh, going through all of these generations, then you begin to see certain things that go wrong, okay? But with that, after Adam and Eve, that wasn't an issue. Okay. So there are things that were not forbidden then, that came to be forbidden later. And, uh, but God did allow these things, uh, and he has the perfect right to do so, as the complete Lord and Master and Creator of all. He can do this. Uh, for the sake of the human race, and for furthering the, the primary purpose of his creation, And uh, remember, the first command he gave to Adam and Eve was increase, multiply, fill the earth, was to give life. And all of these things that God did, even not only the laws that he laid down, but even the exceptions to the laws, for a time, he allowed, for the sake of that first command, to give life. So it seems as though everything yielded to that command, Mm -hmm. that God wanted us to give life. Uh, From Adam and Eve down... Uh, after the flood, with Noah and the, and the the small, you know, sampling of the population that survived the flood, God still wanted that life, and He wanted us to increase and fill the earth, as He says. Um, so, the important thing to realize is, is that God God commanded it. You know? okay. um, there, there are other aspects of this this whole question that um, one could. Um, when you could talk about, but when when our Lord uh, elevated the um, the bond of the natural bond of marriage to the sacramental bond of matrimony, he gave it the 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 um, character and quality of a sacrament with a supernatural purpose, and that supernatural purpose was to give eternal life, and so God can very well say. Uh, we are going to preclude, we are going to leave behind this natural bond, which can only give natural life. And now because this uh, convert now has come to supernatural life, he or she has the door open to uh, now conceiving children and and having them grow up in grace and save their souls now. Um, So, there is a certain interest in in ultimately the salvation of souls there. Mm-hmm. But you have to understand this too. Whenever God does something like that, he always has a reason, at least one. There could be multiple reasons. You know, mm-hmm. God could have a thousand reasons, all of them good, okay. then for uh for making such an exception, and that is an exception. It's called a privilege, not a right, it's a privilege, right? But <clears throat> imagine this, okay? Imagine uh, a, a, a Titus um, marrying Bertha, okay? and they are pagans, and they, they do not have any faith, they do not have any uh, religion, they have no ties to the church, to our Lord. And one of them then uh, is given the grace of faith and uh, is, is wanting to convert to the true faith. But here's the problem. He or she understands the problem with the other spouse, right? And says, "Well, if I convert, I'm going to lose him. I'm going to lose her, and he or she may well be lost forever, right? And I may be giving up whatever opportunity I have uh, to give children uh, to the world, to give children to God, and all the rest that would go with that. You know, they're taking a very serious risk." And uh, perhaps God also, among the other reasons, would say, I do not want that to be an impediment to someone converting to the faith and saving their souls. Mm -hmm. And so God would say to them, that is uh, something I will allow to be done uh, for the sake of removing an obstacle that might prevent you from accepting faith, accepting baptism, coming spiritually alive and uh, saving your soul, and hopefully you know, having children and saving their souls too. Mm-hmm. So God must have seen some, some great good that mm-hmm. could come from it, mm-hmm. and some great evil to be avoided in order to permit it.
1: Mm-hmm. It seems like there's a strong parallel between what you're talking about and the way the Catholic Church functions, which how uh, her ultimate purpose, her ultimate uh, law, if you will, is, this, is the salvation of soul, and every law under that. Is uh, subject to that one mm-hmm. ultimate law. But I, I'd like Well, to that's
0: the Code of Canon Law, sure. you know, back in 1918, when the work done by St. Pius X uh-huh. from 1903 to 1914 during his life, which had been actually held in abeyance until after World War I was finished, was finally promulgated by Pope Benedict XV as the new Code of the Canon Law at the time. And uh, there were 2,414 canons, and the 2,414th canon simply said, salus animarum uh, supreme lex. The salvation of souls is the supreme law. And all the other laws of the Church are at the service of that law. Yeah. They must be. And why? Because it is for that purpose that God became man and that God died on the cross and established the Church in the first place and gave her the authority he did, his own authority. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're right. Uh, that is the supreme law, the salvation of souls. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: certainly, certainly makes sense to me. But Father, um, our our viewer also mentions the, uh, along with the Pauline privilege, they also mentioned the Petrine privilege. Apparently, mm-hmm. refer- referring to Saint Peter. What, what yeah, that that is, much,
0: that is much that is much less common. Okay. And, um, but the individual is re- very interesting that the person would mention that. I'm not that familiar with the Petrine children. I don't know of any Petrine p- tr- privileges that people have received them. Okay. But actually, the Petrine privilege actually allows a, a bit more latitude than the polling privilege, actually. Okay. Interesting. Um, but uh, perhaps we can talk about that. I can talk about it a little sure. bit more knowledgeably next time okay. because uh, um, while the polling privilege is something uh, fairly fairly widely known, mm. the Petrine privilege is actually more rarely applied. Okay. And, um, uh, uh, you know, the circumstances of the Petrine privilege probably would open up a dozen more questions, too. <laughs> uh, we'll uh,
1: then, we, then. we
0: can we can talk about that next time, but okay. I think it would take up well over the past sure. the rest of the program sure. tonight. Sure.
1: Then, uh, then, Father, let's go ahead and move on to another question from one of our viewers who... Uh, writes in and says, Father, I have once heard a podcast of a traditional priest, uh, I I believe of the fraternity of of St. Peter, explaining how the patent used at Mass represents Israel and how it is hidden under the corporal with the host removed, symbolizing the Jews' rejection of Christ, only to be replaced after the paternoster to symbolize the eventual conversion of the Jews. The Novus Ordo obviously doesn't handle the patent the same way, and that they leave the host on the patent the whole time, implying Vatican II's revalidation of the Old Covenant. So, Father, what is the <coughs> correct understanding behind the patent and its usage at Mass?
0: Well, the uh, the writer is, is correct. There is there is symbolism with uh-huh. regard to the patent. The, okay. about it. And uh, what he's talking about here, he, he says he's, he's heard that from uh, one of the... Um, uh, so a, of St. Peter yeah, priest, he said... He I guess." he believes so. Uh, a traditional um, <clears throat>
1: priest, who says. Okay.
0: Okay. Well, one has to remember that when one talks about the patent at a low mass, and what is done with the patent at a low mass, that that is actually a kind of adjustment from what happens to the patent at a high mass. Okay? Uh-huh. And uh, when you have a solemn mass, it is the deacon who holds the patent. And uh, the pattern is not actually left on the altar. <coughs> the deacon uh, the subdeacon, I'm sorry, the subdeacon takes the pattern and enfolds it within what is the humeral veil. It's a veil that goes over the shoulders and when the subdeacon receives the patent at the offertory, he descends the steps <coughs> and he stands there on the floor. <coughs> And he raises that pattern in his hands before him. The veil, it's veiled though. And he actually holds it between his eyes and the, the tabernacle.
2: Okay.
0: And he holds it there throughout. There are times when he will lower it, come up, and join in prayers of the Mass, but he returns to his place and puts the pattern back up. And he's not just holding it down here, he's actually holding it in front of, basically in front of his face. And um, when then it is it is produced in time for the host to be placed back on it, and then to be placed on the uh, on the uh, pat, on the t- uh, corporal. I'm sorry, um, and uh, that is after the Paternoster, their Father. So at the Libranos. So in any case, uh, the um, the symbolism of that, according to some. Um, could mean, right? Some say that it symbolizes the cherubim who veil their faces before the Blessed Sacrament because they see their Godhead there, right? That could well be, right? Others say it symbolizes, um, well, for example, uh, the Jewish people who blinded themselves to the reality of Christ being their Savior, And uh, then, if that is the case, if if one accepts that signification, and there are others that are perfectly legitimate, you know. But if one accepts that symbolism, then one could say that when the subdeacon goes to the altar, uh, takes out and reveals the patent, and the host is slid on the patent, that could well symbolize, finally, the conversion of the Jewish people at the end. That they will come to faith, you know. But one has to realize that um, the historians of the sacred liturgy may refer to uh, this interpretation of the fathers, or that interpretation of a theologian and so on, but the church herself has never necessarily spoken out and said, this is the necessary interpretation, the only possible, the only acceptable interpretation of this particular uh, element of the liturgy. You know, Uh, The symbolism of the patent, why the deacon holds it like that. So that is why you have a multiplicity of different significations given by different people. And they see the symbolism there as representing different things. All of them quite legitimate, really. Well, at at least many of them, some of them might not be legitimate if they're done by heretics. (laughs) But uh, um, in any case, there can be multiple uh, uh, symbolisms that uh, apply okay. and uh, could apply very well. Um, so, if the uh, clergyman in question here said, this is the interpretation, I think he would be misspeaking. But mm-hmm. he could say, very well, this is an interpretation and he could say, it, it seems to be to be very compelling. Um, <clears throat> the Church herself, uh, to my knowledge, has not given an authoritative, magisterial pronouncement
1: okay.
0: on uh, specifically that, that interpretation. <clears throat>
1: okay. Father, speaking of, of symbolism at Mass, we have a question from a viewer who would like to know. Oh, by the way, I'm okay. sorry. Okay. It,
0: it, the question, I have a question about yeah. that question. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the writer says <clears throat> that at the Novus Ordo and they keep the host on the patent all the time, uh-huh. thereby validating the persistence of the Jews um, As the chosen people in the old covenant mm-hmm. being uh Irre- irrevocable and still in force, right? right.
1: Revalidating the Old Covenant. Right.
0: Now, does he say that that's what the the, the clergyman said, the priest said it, or is, he saying, is that his own interpretation?
1: I believe this is his own interpretation. He says the Novus Sordo okay. obviously doesn't handle the patent the same way, and I believe the host on the patent the whole time, implying Vatican II's revalidation of the Old Covenant.
0: Oh, I see. Okay. Well, if that is his interpretation, if one sees the covering of the patent, either putting it halfway under the uh, edge of the corporal, mm-hmm. right? And actually, not only is it, is it slid halfway under the corporal at a low mass, but then the purificator is laid under the other half, okay? One could come up with all kinds of interesting significations of that, half of it being under the corporal, and half of it being under the, under the, the purificator, right? It mm-hmm. be interesting to do a little meditation on that. <laughs> um, and then when it's slid out, it is taken out, held... The libronos is prayed, the host is lit underneath it, and then uh, it is it is placed on the corporal. Okay. Um, if one accepts that signification at the low mass, um, coinciding with the sub, what the subdeacon does at the at the high, at the uh, solemn mass, um, then one could you know. Extrapolate from there and say, okay. Well, then, at the, when at the Novus Ordo, the patent is left out all the time, and the host is left out all the time. Then we could interpret it that way. You could say that.
2: Okay. Right?
0: But uh, whether or not the Novus Ordo crafters, uh, the, the 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 people who concocted this Novus Ordo, right, including the six Protestant ministers who uh, were specifically called. Uh, by Paul VI to, to help devise this new liturgy, right? Uh, whether that's that they had in mind, I don't know. I don't know that anyone has ever referred to that, um, that as having such a meaning.
2: Okay.
0: Um, it'd be interesting to find out if, if they did write about it. I'm not aware of it. Maybe this author knows something about that. But uh, barring that, I would have to say that uh, you know his interpretation certainly be true, because, um, because that's what the Novus Ordo is doing. The Novus Ordo is, in fact, validating the persistence of the Old Testament, of uh-huh. the Old Covenant, and does it in many, many different ways. This could be one way, one way that is interpreted as uh, signifying what they're doing. But even if you, the Novus Ordo didn't do that, even if the Novus Ordo didn't have the host on the Patent, on the Corporal, throughout it would still be doing what it's doing with the Old Testament. Mm. And that's the reality, that it is still uh, pretending that the Old Testament is enduring, even to this day. And they're signifying that in many more significant ways than just leaving the patent out. Gotcha. I mean, the proliferation of Seder suppers, the churches and the, the, mm. the Christians, the Nova Soto Catholics partaking of these things, I mean, again, the message is continually coming out in Nostra Aetate, uh, Vatican II. Um, all of these messages coming from the Novus Ordo is that the Old Testament is still in force, and uh, which is an implicit denial of uh, Christ being the Savior
2: mm-hmm.
0: and the implicit denial of the New Testament. Uh, you know, Catholics have always understood that the New Testament superseded the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. This is what Christ taught. <clears throat> this is what the Church has always taught. The Novus Ordo was contradicting that,
1: mm-hmm.
0: nullifying it. Yeah,
1: interesting. Sounds a lot like modernism.
0: <laughs> uh, it is actually uh, exactly. It,
1: speaking of uh, speaking of, of symbolism, though, Father, we have a viewer who asked, "Why do priests wear cassocks, and what does that represent?"
0: Well, uh, of course, the the cassock represents the the, the tunic of old, right? Okay. Uh, the dress of old uh, in old Roman days and Greek days, you know when our Lord was walking the earth, I mean he wore the long robe, uh, a robe that our lady our lady herself fashioned with for him out of by her own hands right out of her own labor. and uh, finally, the robe that he uh, that he wore as in his public life right was, as you know, um, bartered or gambled for under the foot of the cross, right they wouldn't even tear it because it was so beautifully woven and in a sense kind of miraculously woven from the top and so even these rough soldiers would not squabble over it enough to rip it in pieces but they wanted to keep it intact so the uh, the robes that were worn back in those days kind of, you know naturally succeeded by the clergy for the cassock but the cassock was retained for a very important reason and that is um, the cassock basically um, well I mean there, there are things about the cassock that, that have again symbolism regarding the life of Christ, for example, um, if a cassock is is made. Uh, the way it's supposed to be made, it's supposed to have 33 buttons. Right. Sim- one for each year of the life of Christ. The, the, it, the references
1: that, that point. And, and yeah. other
0: things about the cassock that, you know, have signification. Just as all the vestments have significance when the priest puts them on, he's saying a prayer that acknowledges the significance of each one of the vestments he puts on. And so the cassock is actually blessed. Um, it's not just... Um, just another article of clothing. I mean, it is blessed to be worn signifying his uh, condition as a member of the clergy. Uh, those uh, who are tonsured have the right to wear the cassock, uh, although, in many cases these days, the cassock isn't worn until later because people associate wearing the cassock with being a priest or at least with being in major orders. So, in order to avoid confusion, they might say, Well, you'll You can wear the cassock, uh, at least in public, um, Mm -hmm. only after you've received major orders in some cases. But at least, for example, the seminary, those who are tonsured receive the cassock, it is blessed, and that is their garment then that they they wear at the seminary and that they wear during sacred functions when they're serving and Mm -hmm. so on. Um, The cassock actually serves some very good purposes. Um the priest, well, actually any anyone who's a member of the clergy of the church is is a representative of the church in a certain way in a special way and as a representative of the church his own particular likes and dislikes, his own particular uh, foibles and uh, characteristics are supposed to fade into the background and um it is the personality of the church that he represents that is supposed mm-hmm. to come forward <clears throat> and uh, the cassock kind of represent that because the cassock uh, in a sense covers over all of the personal characteristics of the priests and sort of shields them so that when one sees the cassock one thinks here is a member of the church here's a representative of the catholic church mm-hmm. And he will think like a Catholic, speak like a Catholic, because he thinks like a Catholic and prays like a Catholic. And all of that is represented by the cassock. And uh, I see that as I travel, um, <clears throat> that even now, even not wearing a cassock when you're traveling, um, they see the collar now. And they look up to you, and of course they ask you, are you a Catholic priest? <laughs> well, as soon as they know you're a Catholic priest, they, they talk to you as though they've known you all their lives. And they you know, they... They just start conversations with you, and, and you know, as though uh, you were a brother, in the, a blood brother, you know?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, it's wonderful to see that confidence that people still have, even now, after the Novus Ordo has completely polluted mm-hmm. and corrupted the atmosphere, okay. and turned so much rancor against the church, and so much suspicion against the clergy, their clergy, um... That there are people who still have that high regard for priesthood, that they actually feel safe and comfortable and, uh, in a sense, um, sanctified by the sight of the collar. There are many who have used it, heaven knows that's true. But also, when they see the cassock, there are people who come up to you uh, and, and actually stop, you know, at a restaurant, as we have virtually virtually time, whenever we are yeah. and wearing cassock, yeah. uh, we'll come by and say, it's really good to see the cassock again, it's so wonderful to see the cassock yeah. again. Yeah. Uh, because they remember, you know, many people remember. Yeah. Uh, uh, before the Novus Ordo mm-hmm. uh, poison yeah. uh, was ingested by the Catholic population. Um, and it's beautiful to see. So the cassock actually represents a kind of death to the world, <coughs> And a rejection of the things of the world. And choosing a life uh, that the Lord is my portion and my lot, as the role of the clergy. And uh, to many people today, it still represents that. So that those who love Christ and who love the Church, meaning the true Catholic Church and the true faith, love to see the cassock. And those who hate Christ and who hate the Catholic Church, when they see the cassock, they, they uh, have an immediate revulsion against it, because they understand the meaning of
2: it. Uh-huh.
0: Um, so the cassock um, really is the proper dress of the clergy of the church, and uh, uh, those who want to you know, hold on to the traditional faith mm-hmm. should you yeah. know. Recognize that. I,
1: I think it's interesting to, to kind of compare and, and contrast the idea that you talked about uh, of the individual uh, character kind of blending into the background and, mm-hmm. and that whole idea and to compare and contrast that with the spirit of the day where there's this uh, seeming mania of, of freakishness where mm-hmm. everyone is uh, seemingly having a contest to see who can who can, uh, who can stand out the most and we're constantly told mm-hmm. to, to be yourself. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting to see how they...
0: You know, it's true. Yeah. But, but they also have this mania for blending in the lay people. Yeah. <laughs> just being with mean, father Joe yeah. father Bob father max and just you know being there hugging already I mean my goodness uh, uh, one of the uh, traditional Catholic girls uh, locally uh, uh, married a fellow uh, uh, good people I mean good people uh, they they weren't the ones who wanted this but uh, at their at their wedding uh, there showed up um, the director of vocations from the seminary. Okay. And uh, at the wedding reception, he was out there dancing with uh, one of the young ladies who was, I think, program director from the local Catholic radio pro- station, you know. And they're out there on the dance floor with all the rest of them dancing, and he's the director of vocations for the seminary. What do you think you're going to get from that? Um, it's it's an abomination, and they, they don't seem to understand that. Yeah. They they don't seem to have any clue. Yeah. Uh, and yet, it's impossible for me to understand how they don't they don't see that.
1: It's the opposite of Catholicism
0: It, it really is. I mean, what is that? How is that compatible mm-hmm. with uh, the the vow of celibacy? Uh, well, of course, I'm saying that they did away they did away with the subdiaconate. Mm-hmm. The subdiaconate doesn't exist in the Novus Oral Church, and it was when one became a subdeacon that he made the vow, okay. that he accepted the vow of celibacy. So they did away with the subdiaconate, mm-hmm. okay, but they're still expected to be celibate, okay. But then they have deacons who are laymen who are married, mm-hmm. so they already have a married clergy, right. and so far they have married deacons. So, they have been battering at the walls of celibacy all this time. Mm-hmm. So, I guess when you stop and think about it, um, maybe that vocations director, but uh, simply acknowledging that in the modern church, celibacy is kind of a mirage. It's, mm-hmm. it's a myth. Yeah. It doesn't really apply. Mm-hmm. Um, So, uh, but but I guess what really troubled me the most is that the traditional Catholics there, but they were not horrified by that. You'd think they would have been horrified and Mm disgusted. But uh, they just kind of chalked it up to being some Novus Ordo quirk. But uh, it's much more than that, unfortunately. Uh, it, It was... I was horrified when I heard about it, yeah. but then thought, well, the, 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 that's the Novus Ordem, that's what it does, <laughs> that's true. and uh, you know, if you're horrified at the Novus Ordem, you'll be horrified at that too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, when people see things like that, when they expose themselves to seeing such a things, and they don't react, then gradually they come to a certain kind of acceptance. Mm-hmm. And what would normal, normally, uh, they would find objectionable, they begin to accept just because of exposure. And this is what has happened by and large with the people who are now, who were Catholics back then, who are now novus ordo. But over the years, they've just heard so much and they've seen so much, they've accepted so much, little by little by little. There's practically nothing anymore mm-hmm. that can shock them.
1: Right. They become desensitized
0: they well they become desensitized but remember what makes one sensitive uh, to blasphemy and sacrilege is the faith so the desensitization process has really been a lack a loss of faith in them uh-huh. we just hope that uh, by the grace of God they can uh, redis- rediscover that faith recover the faith uh-huh. and uh, shake the dust off the Novus ergo and come back to the true faith
1: uh-huh. Speaking of faith, Father, uh, why does a priest have to have an altar stone in order to say Mass? And ha- how does a priest offer Mass in the missions if there is no altar stone? Uh, what does a priest do if, say, he's in prison and he has his vestments and his sacred vessels taken away? What would he do in that situation?
0: Well, the early, uh, the early church, okay, going back to the time of the catacombs, um, would offer Mass... Actually, St. Peter and St. Paul didn't have churches to offer Mass. Mm -hmm. And so they would offer Mass in homes. Uh, For example, St. Peter, when he was a guest of the uh, senator, uh, Pudens, and his family, uh, he offered Mass in their home. And he found a certain measure of security there, because Pudens was a very highly respected senator in Rome, in the 40s and 50s, okay, during the 1st century. Uh, And he did not have an altar stone present there. Um, An altar stone contains the relics of martyrs. (coughs) And um, the the apostles did not have such. When they were traveling, they would offer mass, (coughs) they did not have altar stones, because they didn't have the relics of martyrs they were carrying with them. But as uh, time wore on in the empire and the Christians (laughs) found um, their worshiping in the homes in the city rather dangerous and also because the gatherings were growing, they they found a measure of security and safety down in the catacombs rather than in the private homes there. Uh, the Roman pagans were very uh, superstitious and they were very nervous about tampering with what they would consider to be you know, the after death now, they would placate them, they would bury them with valuables send them on their way um, but they, they were superstitious about irritating and aggravating them <laughs> and so um, they would often leave the catacombs alone um, there, as I as I recall, only two times that we know historically, the Roman soldiers were ordered into the catacombs to seize the Christians while they were in the process of offering mass. One of them was the, the Pope Sixtus and uh, the time of Saint Lawrence. You know. But uh, otherwise, if they some of the Christians were going into the catacombs to worship, uh, they would sometimes wait for them to emerge. And attack them when they came out. But to descend into the catacombs, which was the necropolis, the, the city of the dead, the pagans were very, very wary of that, okay? Uh, superstitiously so. Um, they would come out to the mausoleum on the anniversaries of death and they would have refrigeria, they would have like these, these feasts on the top of the mausoleum, they would pour wine down the holes into the tombs below. Uh, including their dead relatives, you know, who were included in, in that way, uh, but uh, they didn't like to descend. So anyway, the, the, the point being that uh, when the Christians were in the, were in the catacombs, they would be offering the masses over the graves of the martyrs. Mm-hmm. Um, the Christians, uh, in many cases, actually started burial societies, uh, it was considered quite a service, even among the pagans, to take away bodies that were not claimed, and to bury them. And there were groups that did specialize in that, dedicate themselves, and the Christians also did that. This was an opportunity for them to, to recover the bodies of the martyrs. Um, the pagan emperors would catch on, and the governors, and eventually even uh, you know, order the bodies of martyrs untouched, and, and so that if Christians came and took them, they could be seized, And because they were identifying themselves as Christians, it was an opportunity then to seize another Christian and gain another martyr, put another one to death. Because the Christians were very, very definite and courageous about gathering up the remains of the martyrs and giving them proper burial. And um, because of the resurrection, because of their belief in the resurrection. So, um, from very early, early times, the bodies of the martyrs were taken down to the catacombs, given uh, a uh, proper Christian burial. Uh, around the tombs you have symbols of eternal life. Uh, the hero symbol that looks like an X and the P, the first letters of the name of Christ in Greek, is very common there. Um, other, other symbols of eternal life, uh, biblical scenes would be uh, adorning the walls uh, uh, around their tombs, like in frescoes. Um, uh, you'd have scenes from the Bible painted there. So, uh, all of these revelant of eternal life. And that is where the earliest masses in the catacombs were offered over the graves of the martyrs. So, ever since then, the church has said in memory of these times and recognizing uh, the blood of the martyrs being the seat of the church, but also Uh, being uh, mingled with the blood of Christ, you might say, on Calvary. um, We are going to uh, require that the the Mass be offered over the tombs of the martyrs. And that's where our altar stones came from. Um, So that in an altar stone, and you're just... Usually when people refer to altar stones, you're talking about a piece of marble, maybe an inch thick, maybe a little more, and perhaps uh, a foot or a little less... Uh, square, right, Uh, into which uh, a hole or a a trough has been chiseled, the relics of martyrs placed inside, and then a piece of marble, a cap pushed in, level, and then mortared in, so uh, there's no ridge there, but it's all perfectly level, but the stone contains the relics of two martyrs, and mass can be offered on. And you can have the most beautiful altar with this magnificent ribberdos and a great baldacchino and very sumptuous gilded uh, statues and candlesticks and all the rest. But if there's no, if the relics of the martyrs are not there, you can't offer mass there. Traditionally, you could not offer mass there okay. because the altar really is the altar stone. Hmm. But um, if you had none of the uh, none of the above, no baldacchino, no ribidos, um if you just had the altar stone itself, you could offer mass there because the relics are contained there, even if you just had the stone. Okay. Uh, now, it's, it's another question. To, to, well, I'll, the, just to expatiate just a little bit more <laughs> uh, our church here, Immaculate Conception, does not have an altar stone <clears throat> as such. <clears throat> the entire top of the altar is one big marble slab, 10 feet wide or a little more. And uh, three feet deep, and the tabernacle inside. So on. That one large altar, altar slab or altar stone has again the sepulcher in the middle of it, in front of the tabernacle, where the um, the relics of the martyrs have been inserted. <coughs> the uh, marble cap has been inserted, and then over that, and then the mortar, so that it is sealed. <coughs> And so there you have the, an altar which is entirely, you know, the, the altar okay. mensa uh-huh. itself is one large stone. Okay. But many altars have come to be uh, in the course of time made of wood, made of wood, and so you would uh, drop into that wooden structure an altar stone in such a way that it, it is perfectly level with the wood of the altar and there's no ridge or anything that would catch the edge of a chalice and you would offer mass on that stone when we travel in the missions uh, either we have an altar in place with the the altar stone Uh uh, with the relics of the martyrs or we have to take one uh, with us and travel with it, but now that's difficult because of TSA regulations and x-rays and all the rest mm-hmm. and they're demanding you know why are you carrying this chunk of marble around with you and You you find people who, who know there are Catholics who have a certain understanding of it, but there are many who don't have any idea what you're doing and To view it with suspicion and might even confiscate that which would not be good. Okay. So um, You know they say well you could weaponize that Expose, yeah. weaponize anything. <laughs> so, but anyway, um, the, but we will sometimes carry, if we're going somewhere in an emergency where there is no altar and no altar stone we can use, sometimes we'll carry what is called an antimensium, a Greek corporal. And the Greek rite uh, writes, it's possible to lay a cloth on the surface of the mensa, and there inside, encapsulated, are relics of martyrs.
2: Hmm. And
0: that would actually take the place of an altar stone, okay. but the essential thing is to have the relics of the martyrs okay. there. What the Novus Ordo has done away with all that.
1: Sure.
0: Yeah. Now they just have a table.
1: <laughs> what about though? If a priest is, is in prison and ha- has all that taken away, has nothing with him, is he not able to say mass <laughs> at all?
0: If a if a priest were let's say imprisoned in the in the gulag by the communists and so on, yeah, there are there are priests who certainly have. They've um, had. A host and uh, wine smuggled into them one way or another it takes a lot of cleverness to get past the communist guards <laughs> because they're on uh, they're on guard against this. Against okay. this.
2: Okay.
0: Uh, but there are also those who, even in their imprisonment, there are stories of those who even in their imprisonment <clears throat> have managed to gather a few a few grapes or uh, so, even some raisins. And even though they're starving, you know, uh, even though the, the, their fellow prisoners are starving. <clears throat> they give them what little they have, so the priest can <clears throat> somehow surreptitiously um, <clears throat> um soak those raisins, even and allow the fermentation process to proceed to the point where it is actually wine mm-hmm. and then with basically a thimbleful of wine and uh, some uh, the 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 host that they were able somehow to get whether smuggled into the prison camp or somehow they were able to. Gather it from somewhere, always at great peril. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then the priest would offer mass for memory, and uh, he would might even use a shirt—you know—the cuff of his shirt as the corporal. Uh, The church has allowed that; she hasn't condemned that for those who are in peril of death. Uh, But you know, going back to the beginning, you see the church allowing some extraordinary things. For example, Saint Tarsius a young lad who would not they thought be suspected because he was so young who was allowed to carry a pixel with the blessed sacrament with the intention of carrying it into the prison smuggling it past the guards for the the Christians who were condemned to die and um, of course you know what happened saint narcissus uh, his tomb there is at the catacombs of saint calixtus in rome and um it's held in great veneration of course by all real catholics um, as uh, to show the 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 reverence and the sacredness, the, the reverence that the Christians in those even in those early days uh, had for the Sacred Host, because they they believed with absolute uh, firmness in the real presence of Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. Uh, they believed what Saint Justin Martyr wrote back in the year one sixty five, or so about the fact that this is the body of Christ that was born of the Virgin Mary that hung on the cross for us. And um, <clears throat> so that, that a young lad would be entrusted with that to take to the martyrs about to die, that he himself would give his life protecting the Blessed Sacrament. It's a great tribute <clears throat> to our faith, the real presence of Christ there.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But it also shows this. It shows th- that in extraordinary times, <clears throat> the Church does waive certain rules as you might as you say there are ecclesiastical laws that yield to the supreme law of the salvation of souls uh-huh. and uh, This was one of them in the time of st. St. Certis- that a young lad was given the blessed sacrament to carry in the time of uh, father Miguel pro With the persecution of the church in Mexico back in the 1930s uh-huh. That he left the blessed sacrament in a private homes in a cupboard and uh, such a, the fa- that if he could not come, for one reason or another, that the father of the family could administer the host. But these are extraordinary circumstances, obviously, the most extraordinary circumstances. But the Church allows that. And we understand that in being traditional Catholics, we look back and we see the Church appro- approved this under certain circumstances. The Church allowed these things under certain circumstances, And we see from Catholic tradition what the Church has always condemned, what the Church has always required and always approved, and what the Church has not only permitted but but approved in times of persecution. And uh, that is why we we call ourselves traditional, because that's what we're following. Mm -hmm. We're following the actual example of the Church through those centuries. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is how we have to make our judgments as to what is permissible and what is not. According to what the church has done,
2: right.
0: and then what she pronounced upon was done, whether it was uh, whether it was right and good and legitimate or whether it was not. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you uh, raise the question of the stone, and you see what the church is requiring and why, you can see why we're holding to that. You can see why in the when the Nova sort of departs from that and so it brushes that aside as though it meant nothing to them. Essentially, what they're saying is, we are wiping away the centuries of Catholic tradition and we are basically establishing a new liturgy on a new foundation and it is not it is not founded on the martyrs it is not founded on the fathers it is not founded on Christ it's not founded on the the church that Christ established they're they're creating a new religion
1: that's interesting well father we've got just a little time left so I'd like to ask you um, This question from one of our viewers who asks about historical criticism and he writes in and says, uh, I have a question in regards to the topic of historical criticism. I have noticed that several non-believers and modernists have made reference to this method in order to discredit the pre-Vatican II Church and the validity of the Holy Scriptures. So I was wondering if Father can clarify and give his opinion if there is any hidden agenda behind the use and creation of this method or if it has any validity as a study method to the Bible. Um, Also, how was the Bible studied and viewed before the disasters
0: of Vatican II? Well, this uh, historical criticism Mm -hmm. uh, is actually spoken of by uh, Pope Pius X in his condemnation of the errors of the modernists in the Pesciandi Domenici Regis of 1907. He talks about this, he talks about the modernist as a text critic, as a historical critic, and how the modernist applies his text uh historical criticism to the bible mm-hmm. to divine revelation to the tradition, the history of the church and so on and uh of course the problem is not with any legitimate his history and not with any legitimate criticism the problem comes with the modernism and how the modernism uses and abuses that when the question is is this actually legitimate can this be legitimately used or is this a tactic um, well certainly and those who, who don't have faith and those who are attacking the faith, it is a, ta- a tactic it is not to gain a greater understanding of the meaning of these things it is to actually do the opposite destroy the meaning of these things uh, you know this this whole idea of historical criticism came up basically in the 1800s among the Protestants and uh, the the modernists kind of drew out of this very rationalist uh, it was a very rationalistic I'm talking about from the philosophical point of view very rationalistic approach to look at faith, look at the scriptures look at history, the, the history of the church and her tradition when I say rationalist I mean this <clears throat> that anything that is of su- supernatural significance has to be immediately denied right. it has to be immediately discounted uh, one cannot allow himself to think in the terms uh, anything supernatural so in other words uh, if there's a question of a miracle, it, that is out of the question. There is no miracle. We has, we know there's no miracle. We have to proceed, looking at this thing, to say, okay, what is the explanation? What does this really mean? An example, okay, in the in the Bible, in the Gospel, our Lord uh, multiplies loaves and fishes. Okay, Saint John chapter six, and. Um, he feeds all these thousands of people with a handful of bread, a handful, a couple of fishes, right? And there's more food left over when they ended than when they began. Okay? And um, what really happened? Okay? The the modernist will say, based upon his historical criticism, there can be no miracle here. It's absolutely forbidden. And so the only logical way, uh, the only rational way to disc- to explain this is. That all of these people had plenty of food. They were still carrying plenty of food, but they wouldn't share any of it And what Christ convinced them to do was to share their food and so he however shamed them into it inspired them pulling out the bread and the fish that they had in their pockets bringing it all out and everybody managed to share their food together and then in the end the apostles gathered up and they, and they they gave it up. They let the apostles gather it in the baskets and carry it away. And that was the miracle. But there was no real miracle in the sense that we understand it. Right? It's all just a moral miracle that Christ convinced people to share. That's how this historical criticism has to address these issues. It has to say, okay, look at the times, look at how people thought in the times, look at how people lived in the times, Okay. And uh, having ruled out the supernatural, um, we have to rule out the idea that, that Jesus is any more than a man. We can't allow that, okay? Uh, we have to rule out uh, the fact that you can, uh, that there are demoniacs. You don't know, have, have to be delivered from the power of the devil. You have to rule out the idea that lepers can be cured by, by, just by an act of the will of Christ, because he is only man. To rule out multiplication of loaves and fishes, you have to rule out walking on water, you have to rule out all that stuff. Right? So you have to explain it all <clears throat> according to the culture of the moment, the understanding of the times. Why would they say that he was walking on water? Oh, well, if we look at the culture of the times and we look at the way they lived and how they understood things, what they really meant to, to say was he was something special, above the ordinary and um so um he knew where all the rocks were that that kind of thing <laughs> and and uh so th- this explains this away this miracle, you know, and um the, like the parting of the red sea i mean i'm jumping all over the place i know but even the parting of the red sea with moses um well we know now we look back and we we see it was actually the reed sea and so it wasn't very deep it was kind of mucky but sometimes you'd get a real heavy wind blowing from the north, I guess it was, or was it from the side? I forget, anyway. And it would endure for days. It would kind of push the water back and dry out the land so the, the Israelites could cross, the Hebrews could cross. And then, wouldn't you know, as soon as the chariots of Pharaoh, uh, you know, were following, the wind stopped. So, natural explanation Coincidence, yeah, but I mean, let's say um, somehow the people who went through this interpreted it as something divine, and this was their faith experience. Okay, and uh, this is how they, they they interpret everything, you know, in in sacred scripture. Once you have taken away the very notion of, of anything supernatural, everything must have a natural uh, solution and a natural explanation you bend yourself, uh, your mind, into, into, into knots mm-hmm. to explain it, even making yourself look really foolish, or making those who wrote the scriptures look really, really foolish. But that's what you've got left. And once they have succeeded in making the writers of the scripture look very foolish, the next step is for people just to lose all faith together and say, well, these things are just a collection of myths, mm-hmm. in other words.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And say, well, yeah, this, it was their faith experience... We've left that behind now, we've evolved beyond their faith experience, because we have our own faith experiences now. Mm-hmm. But this is, this is what their times taught them, how their times taught them to interpret what was happening. And this was their interpretation. But now, of course, we know better.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so, as I say, it began heavily among the Protestants, was <laughs> condemned by the Catholic Church, obviously, mm-hmm. as blasphemous. And then it weeded its way into uh, Catholic uh, the minds and hearts of some ignorant uh, Catholic priests, clergy, who, who kind of, uh, we'd say, insinuated themselves into the- theological circles. Okay? And they began like a cabal, as St. Pius X says, to promote each other, to praise each other, to award each other for their great insights. And finally, in 1907, Papias X, in his encyclical, exposed it to the world and said, look what's happening. Uh, We have this fifth column within the church. They're already in the heart and veins of the church, in the clergy. And uh, they're working their way in, and their goal is to entirely subvert the church and subvert the faith. He said that actually modernism is the synthesis of all the heresies rolled into one. Well, I mean, we could interpret that as apostasy.
2: Uh-huh.
0: Um, and one of the methods they used to undermine faith was this uh, historical criticism. Uh-huh. So, yes, I mean, in answer to our writer there, it has been used uh, uh, as a battering ram against faith. And um, it um, I mean, it's, it's continuing today. Um, if if one were to ask, does it have any place at all? As he does, can it be used to understand anything? Well, yes. But Catholic writers, going back to the fathers of the Church, even the apostolic fathers, um, did, you know, did acknowledge that there are cultural things at work when they were explaining the wedding feast of Cana they would explain the times they would talk about the water pots and what they were for and they talked about the jewish wedding feasts and what the place of these was talk about the relationship between the servant and the steward you know the place of our blessed mother the place of our lord they would explain it according to the text of the sacred scripture but they would kind of flesh it out according to <clears throat> the culture of the times the place of cana so it does it does have a, a role to enable us to understand uh, even even in the course of dramatizing, let's say, uh, scenes from the Bible, like we were going to have a play, and we were going to include <clears throat> acting out the wedding feast of Cana, as sometimes in children's schools they might do, you know, or sometimes they would do when in, when they're when they're filming a uh, movie on the life of Christ, you know, they try to flesh these things out, and they try to incorporate, and <clears throat> make them as authentic as possible. Um, <clears throat> By actually investigating well, what did those water pots look like, where would they have been placed? How would the people have used them? all of that is part of this historical criticism. Yes. but um, if it comes from the standpoint of faith it 's good, uh-huh. and what it helps you do is it helps you understand <clears throat> what you believe better uh, and uh, to to um, actually understand better even the words of our Lord and the actions of our Lord. Mm -hmm. But when it starts with faithlessness, and not just a lack of faith, when it starts with a a, a real hostility toward faith and the supernatural, that's when you've got um, a terrorist Mm -hmm. on the loose within the clergy. Mm -hmm. And St. Pius X did not use the word terrorism, but I'll tell you his description of modernists really fits the description of a terrorist, a <laughs> theological,
1: yeah.
0: philosophical terrorist.
1: And, and Father, if, if I may, it seems that uh, a simple method uh, of proving how ludicrous this idea of, of historical criticism or uh, of rationalism and, and saying that, that, that Jesus Christ was nothing more than just a, a mere natural man who happened to, to know the environment. Uh, if you examine the life uh, of Jesus Christ, here is a man who was born in abject poverty, in a stable, um, in one of the, the poorest regions of the world at that time, just an absolute uh, a no-name part of the world. Uh, object poverty his whole entire life. He worked the lowly trade, uh, trade of a carpenter. He lived out of the public eye for 30 years of his life, which was 33 years long. He only lived in the public eye for three years. Uh, he never wrote a single word, as far as we know. He never commanded anyone to write a single word. He didn't have any uh, any contacts, any any connections, anything like that. In fact, quite the opposite. He, he spent his life uh, criticizing the the, the the people of his time. powers that be. Right. And, and, and through all of that, um, he has somehow still been worshipped by billions and billions of people as <laughs> the living son of God. And to say that he was nothing more than a mere natural man who... Who, who merely uh, knew where the, wa- the rocks were in the water and, and, could rock up, and could walk on the rocks. That in itself, it seems that that is an irrational statement. But to, 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 to say that, okay, I- I- examining the, these factors of the life of Christ, that clearly there was some some divine uh, intervention at play here.
0: Well, the moderns would say this, okay? okay. A advocate. Okay. But Buddha, <clears throat> I mean, you Christians, you don't recognize him as the son of God. But look, I mean, he wrote philosophical ramblings <clears throat> and they have become the core faith and practice of, well, as many Buddhists as there are Christians in the world, they would say, okay, mm-hmm. and look at Muhammad, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't say he was divine, mm-hmm. you don't even acknowledge that he was a prophet of Allah. You actually say he was kind of an heir-do-well, <clears throat> and yet look at all the followers he have who are willing to die for him, mm-hmm. kill and die for him. Mm-hmm. So, if you're going to use that argument for your Jesus Christ, why, why would that not argument not equally apply to their Buddha, their Mohammed, mm-hmm. uh, their Moses, and so on? Uh, and uh, Now, there's an answer to that, I understand that. But, I mean, the modernists could very easily say that. Mm-hmm. That look at all these other great world re- leaders of the religions, the let's say the authors and founders of world religions, Uh, don't they also have the the things to boast about uh, that you're attributing to your Christ but the modernists would say rather what this shows is that Buddha and Mohammed and um, Confucius and Jesus uh, forgive me and, and Moses they all have something in common and that is they all were mere mortal human beings like the rest of us but each one of them had his own exceptionally powerful faith experience. This is the modernist sense. Uh, Buddha had his, <clears throat> Confucius his, Mohammed his, and so on. Each had a very powerful, unique faith experience. <clears throat> and this faith experience was so powerful that each one of them began, they couldn't help but speak about what they had experienced. They spoke about it, and they spoke about it in such a compelling way that they gained followers, and they became gurus. Whether you call them rabbis or gurus, what's the difference, they say, right? Masters, whatever. <clears throat> they gained followers, and the followers came to them because they were so uh, attracted and drawn by the the account of their faith experience that they wanted to share in this. They wanted a part of it. They wanted to experience this for themselves, you see. And so all of the followers who came to Moses and all of the followers who came to Confucius and Buddha and Mohammed <clears throat> were all attracted by the force of the personality, yes, but the personality that, that, that was, you might say, the result of this, this faith experience that, that imbued them and filled them and empowered them and made them eloquent and persuasive and as they gained these followers then their followers actually kind of lionized them you know, like they're not as the rest of men, they're somewhat special You know, and this this great uh, uh, this great master of ours, this great rabbi of ours uh, does amazing things and, and it comes up with tremendous wisdom and can solve the most serious problem and ward off all of his enemies, right? right. When, no matter what question they ask him, he gains the mastery over them immediately. The simplest way. Kind of a verbal martial arts, you know. And so we see, again, power here and wisdom that is beyond mere human wisdom and power working in him. And then when they die, when Confucius or whatever, Mohammed, they, um, they find something very significant even in that. And of course with our Lord, it was the crucifixion, which I mean, goes beyond, it makes pale, you know, Moses' death or Mohammed's death or Confucius' death. There you have something uniquely powerful in our Lord as far as his faith experience, see. So that became the focal point. And uh, the, the, the process of this was, was, was called disfiguring. In life, they disfigured the concept of this person into something larger than life. And then after they die, their memory undergoes a process of transfiguring them. Where now they become not only larger than life, some merely great prophet, but they become something of the divine. That's what happened to Jesus, you know. now they, No one ever said that Confucius was, was divine being, although uh, Buddha, Bodhisattva, they, you know, they, they have some kind of peculiar understanding of these things. Uh, No one thought of Moses as being a divine being, and no one thought of Muhammad. He's the prophet of Allah, right? But we're saying that Christians transfigured Jesus into the Son of God, not just figuratively, not just by adoption or grace, but God's own divine Son by nature. Now that is really an extraordinary leap, see? So the the modernists say... that there are actually two different figures we're talking about here we have to distinguish whether we're talking about the jesus of history mm-hmm. the man the, the the man who was born in the stable of the virgin mary who um, lived did the carpenter's trade and uh, suffered died was buried okay the end of the historical jesus as they call him and then began the mythological christ of, of faith, so now faith has engendered this this figure of Christ in in, in the Christian mind you know. That's what the modernists would say mm-hmm. <clears throat> so um you know again, I don't know that uh, i I've heard that you know he he lived uh, in obscurity, he was born in obscurity in a stable, he lived in obscurity, and so on and so forth. And yet he went on to influence all of these billions of people over succeeding generations, and uh I say that that is impressive, you know, but um the moderates would say it doesn't prove anything; it just means that Jesus is not as the rest of men, but more like Buddha and Mohammed, you know on the same level with them right. but um but you know it's not. It's more than that, Tim, right? I'm sorry for going on and on there. <laughs> right. You you know it's more than that. <clears throat> we know that uh, Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, is far beyond any Confucius, Mohammed, mm-hmm. Moses, mm-hmm. Uh, Buddha, mm-hmm. uh, or any of them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Father, sorry,
1: if, yeah. if I could, my my answer to that would be that uh, the modernist position that that all these great uh, religious figures share some. Some uh, elements of, of truth in them. It seems that they're contradicting themselves because if you view the, the actual teachings of Jesus, his whole entire, all of his teachings stem from the fact that he is the Son of God. His doctrine is divine by its nature. Um, the the idea of, of loving your enemy that's that's a divine doctrine. There's there's no human uh, human 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 power that could come up with that. And if you view all the teachings of all of these other of uh, Muhammad. Um, I believe, like you always say, Islam is nothing more than just glorified male passions. It's just, it's, it's, it's merely human. The same thing with, with, uh, with Buddha and all of his teachings. And uh, even if their followers view them as maybe semi-divine or, or, or something of the sort, they don't worship them as the literal son of God as we do Jesus Christ. But also, if you view their doctrines, their doctrines were not divine in nature. And if you view the doctrines of Jesus Christ, they're actually divine in nature. There's no human power uh, no no human reason to say,
0: Well, see, Tom, now we're, we're shifting okay. <laughs> from the, the life of Christ, you know, born in the stable and all that. Uh-huh. Now we're looking at the doctrines. And you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. When you look at the doctrines there, there is a night and day difference. There's a heaven and earth difference. Mm-hmm. There's a heaven and hell difference <laughs> in, in the doctrines. And this is where we can say this is not merely some, you know, a religious experience that Jesus of Nazareth had as a man and that he just conveyed this religious experience as his own personal musing on the divine this is truly divine teaching this is truly above the human nature this is supernatural and when you say divine you're right and we, we could look at the teachings of our Lord and say this is supernatural you mentioned one of these teachings um, Buddha was the one who came close to saying well just overlook, overlook the injuries done to you, you know, maintain your calm throughout all of that you know, no matter what hardships and trials and injustices you suffer but that is, <clears throat> that is light years away that is, that is more than light years away the difference between, between heaven and earth <clears throat> between our Lord saying <clears throat> love your enemies I require this of you I require this of you If you wish to be my followers, my disciples, you must do this. You must love your enemies. No other no other world religious teacher, no one else has ever said that, let alone done that. Mm -hmm. This is something that is simply beyond the power of human nature. It requires God's grace. Christ can command that because, as the Son of God, he has the power to give that grace, Mm -hmm. to fulfill that commandment. To love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, that is a divine commandment. and uh, to love your neighbor as yourself and then at the last supper our Lord says a new commandment I give you to love each other as I have loved you and then he goes to the cross this is absolutely, you're right intrinsically supernatural and there are no parallels to this anywhere, in any of the other other religions uh, or any other founders of of the other religions so called, you know and uh, so you're right if we look at the the actual doctrines the teaching of our lord totally supernatural and they are they are definitely the work of the son of god not some mere mortal person fantasizing on the divine Mm -hmm. um and the apostles knew that Mm -hmm. and so did those who fulfilled our lord's words blessed are those who have not seen but have believed
1: Mm And it, it just seems rather ludicrous that, that so many uh, today and I guess throughout all, all of all of history have uh, viewed our Lord as some sort of great teacher great prophet mm-hmm. but not the Son of God but how could you say that when his whole entire teaching was that I am the Son of God mm-hmm. so either he is the greatest uh, charlatan of all time or he's the son of God but there, but, but, there
0: really but, is no middle ground right it's, but it's I mean <laughs> yeah
1: yeah um, <laughs> But anyway, Father, I that was an interesting discussion there. But I think we have time for just one more uh, quick quick question from uh, from one of our viewers who asks if the cross with the risen Christ instead of the crucified Christ, is that even a Catholic symbol or is it purely a Nova Ordo concoction? Um, also, what other alterations of the traditional crucifix are allowed or forbidden? And I believe, Father, um, I've heard you say in the past at the moment Christ disappears from the cross is the moment that uh, Christ disappears from the religion, from any religion. So yeah. why, why is that true?
0: Well, the uh, the fact is, the XII condemned representing uh, our Lord um, crucified without showing his sufferings. the okay. twelfth uh, condemned these rep- misrepresentations of Christ as though his body was simply superimposed upon a cross. Mm-hmm but not nailed to the cross, and not dying on the cross. <clears throat> um, you have the modern Novus Ordo crosses that have the cross there, if they have it at all, but they have like a risen Christ yeah. sort of superimposed yeah. upon it.
2: we
0: mm-hmm. uh, not representing his sufferings and his death. And this is kind of a concession to Protestantism. Yeah. Um, Protestants want the bare Cross, they might have the cloth over it showing resurrection, okay, the shroud over it. <clears throat> but they don't like representations of Christ on the cross and hanging on the cross, suffering on the cross, dying on the cross, they don't like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, one can understand why, in a sense, because <clears throat> their doctrine that we are saved by faith alone has taken the need for suffering, <clears throat> the need for sacrifice, out of their religion, okay? Okay if you are saved by faith alone by simply believing that Jesus Christ paid by his suffering and his death, the debt of your sins and then once you accept that, you embrace that, and and you take Christ as your savior and accept his suffering and death for you (coughs) that you are saved from that moment on (coughs) regardless of what sins you committed before or after that moment (coughs) they will not be imputed to you and sacrifice, the whole idea of sacrifice uh, In Martin Luther's uh, Bible, it had no place. In Martin Luther's religion, sacrifice was truly gratuitous. It was actually a matter of pride, assuming that you could actually do something worthy of offering something to God. You You can't, because your nature is corrupted, and everything you do is out of selfishness. And even in in presuming to offer sacrifice, you're actually, in a sense, making mockery of Christ's cross. Because that is sufficient unto itself. And you have nothing to offer, and you have nothing you have to offer. Um, nothing you can offer. Um, so, the idea of taking Christ off of the cross uh, really does correspond to uh, fundamental ideas in the religion, fundamental notions of the religion, of the relationship of our, us to our Lord. And um, this is, um, the, the focus of Protestantism is that um, basically that that the cross is over, Christ has died, you're saved, and just accept it.
1: And sin boldly.
0: And and sin boldly, (laughs) as Martin Luther said. If you're tempted to resist sin, uh, resist temptation, uh, be humble, admit that you're a sinner, and go ahead and sin. Mm -hmm. Just to admit it. And increase your faith, then, that Christ already paid for that sin, so you haven't done anything to worry about. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but the Catholic faith has always, well, um, uh, actually, there was a great deal of shame in the cross originally, in the representations of the cross. Um, but the fact is that the Catholic Church understands the, the meaning of the gospel and the teaching of Christ when our Lord says, if anyone wishes to be my disciple, he must take up his cross every day and come after me. And that requires the willingness to suffer for and with Christ, uh, Christ crucified, and to accept the hardships of life in union with the cross of Christ. Um, there is no contradiction between that and accepting the fact that Christ died for you, but you, as Saint Paul says, must make up in yourself, as he said, he made up himself the things that were lacking in the sufferings of Christ, and the only thing that could possibly be lacking in the sufferings of Christ are the, the little sufferings and irritations and aggravations that I have to offer him. And this is what our Lord wants, and this is what he means, when he says, if I want to be his disciple, I and you and all, everyone else must be willing to patiently accept the hardships and the little crosses of life out of love for our Lord and offer that bit of patience that we can muster to our Lord, Him, to him who was so patient for us and who has been so patient with us. So we need his patience We meet his patience with our own, and we meet his love with our own, as meager as it is in comparison. Um, He considers it nonetheless to be a great thing, because it's coming from us, who are spiritually children. The um, the, um, penchant for representing uh, Christ risen and glorified in the churches of the Novus Ordo... um, is actually a uh, it's not, you, you can't say it's an explicit repudiation of the cross but it is a relegation of the cross to something secondary and it, it actually corresponds to that liturgy and I think it's important for us to remember that always, about the Novus Ordo liturgy uh, as opposed to the traditional mass, which we know uh, is the is the Um, sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Calvary. It makes it present on the altar. His body and his blood, his soul and his divine nature are present there. Christ whole and entire as God and man are placed there on that altar. He makes himself present there in such a way that he represents the sacrifice that he gave. That's why the double consecration of the bread and the wine, the bread to signify his body, the blood to symbolize his blood, and uh, the, the wine and the chalice symbolize the blood of Christ. But Christ is truly there, and he's not dying. He, he, you could say he's crucified, died, buried, and risen, and glorified. And that is how he's present there. But he does that to bring together the essential elements of the sacrifice that he offered on Calvary. There you have Christ, the priest, who's making, willingly making the offering of himself, the victim, right? There you have the elements uh, representing the death that he underwent for us. And uh, his intention, which was our justification from sin, the grace is necessary for our sanctification. They're all brought together there at the Mass. So when I often think of this at the Mass, that there you have, you might say, the love of God Actually incarnate on the altar. The very love of God is there in the host. And um, that is what he places there for us. And he places it there so that we can come and bring our love for him to meet his love for us in Holy Communion and have them kind of blended together in a sense, you know, to meet love for love. Uh, this is what love does. You know. This is what the love of God does, creating us, and this is what God has enabled us to do in response to his love for us. But in the Novus Ordo, the, the new liturgy not only does not say it is the unbloody sacrifice of Calvary, the new liturgy of their modern mass explicitly takes away all statement to that effect. Wherever it was, a statement like that could be found in the traditional Mass, it has been expunged by the Novus Ordo. Just completely uh, uh, removed altogether and replaced by something that doesn't say that. So the Novus Ordo is a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving
2: mm-hmm.
0: only. But uh, the Council of Trent condemned that because that was the Protestant <laughs> liturgy, which denied the Mass. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, the Council of Trent said that one would say that the Mass is only a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Anathema, he's, he's not even a Catholic, he's, he's excluded from the Church. Uh, he's denied the faith. <clears throat> this is what the Novus Ordo is. It is not the sacrifice of Calvary. It was never intended to be the sacrifice of Calvary. It was intended to be the anti-sacrifice of Calvary. A denial and a refusal of the sacrifice of Calvary in the New Mass, in the, in the traditional Mass, I'm sorry. So uh, the, re- the new Mass wasn't invented just to kind of share the stage with the with the traditional Mass. Mm-hmm. The new Mass wasn't invented to share the sanctuary with the traditional Mass. The new Mass was created to obliterate, eradicate, to supplant, to replace the traditional Mass. That was the original intention. That's what they tried to do for 20 years before they finally discovered that they couldn't do it. They decided to allow the traditional Mass or some reasonable facsimile thereof uh, to coexist with the the new mass, but that wasn't the original intention, uh, because these two things are completely antithetical. The new mass was created to destroy the traditional mass altogether and replace it with a, a liturgy that is uh, not only Protestant, but actually uh, goes beyond beyond Protestantism now in modernism, and it is actually a uh, a uh, a service that is really meant to be the death of Christianity. It's a modernist concoction, and as St. Pius X said, the ultimate, uh, the ultimate goal and the ultimate effect of modernism is to destroy all faith, everything we know as faith, with just pure naturalism. And um, the the taking of our Lord off that cross corresponds. Perfectly with their new liturgy they go together. It's not an accident accident that they that they stage their Novus Ordos under <clears throat> a You know a figure of a risen Christ superimposed on a cross, but not hanging on it, not dying on it uh, because uh, That really does reflect what their new liturgy is all about um, And that as I say uh, it's a denial, it's an denial of, of our Lord's own person, a denial of our Lord's own mission. Time and time again, how often did our Lord say that he had come to give his life, to offer his life, to sacrifice his life. And there, as our Lord was saying to the apostles, as we're going to commemorate often during the Lenten season, I will go to Jerusalem, the Son of Man will there be scourged and spat upon and, and uh, condemned and, and die upon the cross. And um, so the, uh, the New Mass um, demands that uh, the, the churches, the architecture, the art, everything around it reflect this new, this new concept, and, uh, which is embodied in the, in, in the New Mass itself. Taking our Lord off the cross, having no longer the crucified Savior, uh, there, behind the altar, above the altar, is part of that great plan. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Oh, Father, that, that so, seems like a, a good note to end on, especially.
0: You, you, uh, you say there's a short question, but <laughs> the, unfortunately, the short <laughs> questions do not really uh, <laughs> get a lot of short uh-huh. answers, and I apologize. No, that, that,
1: that's so. that's all right. Uh, I, I think that's a that's a perfect note to end on. though, that, that, that we're about to we're about to celebrate the the Lenten season, when, yeah. when we'll commemorate this uh, so so vividly, but Certainly um so. I apologize for the for the length of that that that, that program, Father. But we've been holding on to, to some of these questions for some time now. And I wanted well, I know to, get
0: we, to get to We them, did so. want to cover some of them. We mm-hmm. want people to send who send questions in to know that we are paying attention. Right. We right. take their questions seriously. We do. I appreciate you doing it. Yeah,
1: yeah. Thank you. Uh, thank, thank you for being here tonight, Tom. Thank you for yeah. Yeah. Uh I'd also like to thank all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe.